It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. Could non-physician practitioners be the next target of auditing by CMS and private payer auditors? Reporting our lead story this morning is senior health care analyst Frank Coney standing by. Also on the rundown this morning, health care attorney David Glazer reports on a topic that's generating lots of buzz. It's the attorney-client privilege. Nicole Emanuel is standing by with her exclusive reporting of Medicaid State of the Union. And the passing last Tuesday of former First Lady Barbara Bush in her funeral service on Saturday is focusing a bright light on palliative care. Dr. Michael Salvatore is standing by to report on this developing story. And Monitor Money Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley has the latest hot topics in the Monitor Money Listener Survey. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. You know, the one thing that medicine does not have enough of is abbreviations. So allow me to introduce you to another one, SDH. Now, I'm sure many of you are aware of the social determinants of health. But for those of you who aren't, those are the non-medical factors that affect a person's health. I don't think anyone would disagree that a patient with multiple medical problems who's supposed to be taking six medications, including insulin injections, is going to face many more challenges if they are also homeless. Their homelessness is a significant social determinant that has profound effects on their health. So why am I talking about this on Rack Monitor Monday? Shouldn't it be a topic for Social Worker Saturday? Well, because these social determinants of health affect your readmission rate, your length of stay, your cost per episode of care, your use of post-acute care, and so on. Just recently, CMS has started making an adjustment to the hospital readmission reduction program to account for the percent of a hospital's patients who are dual eligible. That is, they have Medicare and Medicaid. But other than that, there is no adjustment made for any other social factor. But there's a groundswell of interest in social determinants, so researchers are looking at data and payers are considering the effects these factors may have on patient outcomes. In fact, you may have heard that CMS is going to allow Medicare Advantage plans to start addressing their patient's social determinants by supplying groceries, paying for air conditioning, providing transportation to appointments, and so on. So as the social determinants of health play a bigger role in your reimbursement, the only way that your data can be adjusted for these social determinants is if the appropriate ICD-10 code is on the claim. So now you're asking, why am I talking about ICD-10 coding on Monitor Monday and not on Talk 10 Tuesday? Well, because a diagnosis can only be coded if it is documented. And that's where you all come in. Because in February, the coding rules were changed so that documentation of social determinants of health by any caregiver, including case managers and social workers, can now be used to assign a code and report it on the claim. There are actually 88 assignable ICD-10 codes in the Z55 to Z65 range, including codes like homelessness, low income, stressful work environment, low literacy, divorce, personal history of abuse, and many more. There's even a code for the millennials, 
Z62.1 Parental Overprotection. Now, I doubt all 88 codes will be used for risk adjustment, but we don't know which ones will be used, so we should document and code all applicable conditions. And the more a code is used, the more the researchers will realize that it is a factor for them to consider. Now, in the handout section, you'll find a handout from the AHA outlining the coding rules and the codes, and it's up to you to start documenting. And you're going to be hearing more of this in the coming weeks from one of my favorite social workers, Ellen Fink-Samnick. So stay tuned. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now for the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck, and I'm fresh back from the Healthcare Compliance Institute, Las Vegas, last week. And I want to bring you words from CMS. Uh, Kimberly Brandt gave a keynote session as well as a regular program session. And by way of introduction, Kim is the former director of the Program Integrity Group at CMS, which ushered in the RAC. She was there at the time. For a brief time, she was in private practice in Washington. Then she spent about five years at the Senate Finance Committee as Chief Oversight Counsel. And last August, she went back to CMS's Principal Deputy Administrator for Operation. Kim brought us news that based on pond feedback that they are receiving from constituents, that they have a four-pronged approach. They're taking a new approach to regulatory reform. They're simplifying documentation requirements. They're improving the audit process. And they're reducing EHR burden. Today, I want to mention what they're doing with respect to audits, and that is the TPE. Kim reported pretty enthusiastically that they've had a great response from TPE, and they think that it's going to be helpful in reducing the appeals backlog. And, you know, we have a webinar coming up on that shortly. So now with TPE, the MAC can review 20 to 40 medical records per provider rather than an unlimited that previously they would send vague denial codes and maybe no reasons. Now they must send detailed denial reasons and one-to-one follow-up. And previously they could keep a provider on review for years and years, and now they must stop reviews and refer for stronger corrective action after three rounds. So I'll continue to be giving you updates on this, and I want to turn to the poll now and ask our listeners if they're that enthusiastic about targeted probe and educate. So do you feel that targeted probe and education has been assistance at your facility? Number one, yes. Number two, no. Number three, mixed reaction. And number four, of course, if it's not applicable. Chuck, we'll be back later to see how we measure up with TPE with our listeners. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy's the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. As Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from Frank Cohen, David Glazer, Nicole Emanuel, and Dr. Michael Salvatore. This is Monday. It's April the 23rd, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. You just heard the bad news again. Due to the backlog of pending appeals, it may take years before your facility has a hearing at the ALJ. But there is some good news. There are new initiatives designed to reduce the backlog of appeals. 
Learn how to improve your chances to prevail at the ALJ faster than you ever thought possible. Attend an important webcast conducted by famed appeals attorney Andrew Walkler. Learn the best program to improve your chances to prevail at the ALJ. Register now for Learn New Approaches to Reduce the Backlog at the ALJ. This important webcast is tomorrow, Tuesday, April 24th at April 24th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To register, click on the rotating ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or call 800-252-1578, extension 2. Thank you, Clark Anthony. By the way, there's still time to register for this very important webcast with Andrew Walkler. That's coming up tomorrow, and you're going to learn how to improve your appeal process when you listen to this webcast coming your way tomorrow at 1.30. You know, there's been a media frenzy on the term attorney-client privilege. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. So, David, it's a privilege to have you back. Chuck, I appreciate the pun. So, yes, the raid on Michael Cohn's office has brought discussion about the privilege to the forefront. But many of the statements made by the players or by the media are just categorically incorrect. So Sean Hannity has said, Michael Cohen never represented me in any matter. I never retained him, received an invoice, or paid legal fees. Then, contradicting the claim on payment, he also said, I may have handed him 10 bucks and said, I definitely want your attorney-client privilege on this, something like that. The Washington Post referred to that as the breaking bad definition of attorney-client privilege, and bad it is. So Mr. Hannity's descriptions of the facts is inaccurate. How's his legal acumen? He appears to establish two tests, one based on the exchange of money and the other based on the formality of the engagement. Some misguided commentator on CNN did the same, focusing on whether you've got a written engagement letter. Both of these are totally wrong. Neither the exchange of money nor some formal engagement are required for a communication to be protected by privilege. If you make an inquiry with the expectation that you might engage counsel, that request is privileged even if you ultimately never engage me. It certainly doesn't require the exchange of money, and that should be obvious. Pro bono clients are protected by the privilege, even though they don't pay. The real question is whether the person is engaging the attorney with the expectation he or she may possibly serve as legal counsel. Note this doesn't mean every conversation you have with someone who happens to be a lawyer is privileged. If, knowing my productivity for uh, storm chasing, you called and asked whether there was likely to be a tornado in your hometown, that's clearly not seeking legal advice. It's just seeking a meteorological opinion, so no privilege. But what if you type into a, a question into the chat box during this broadcast? Is that privileged? No, because the chat box is public and your request isn't confidential. But one teeny change, and if you send an email right after the broadcast with that question, it changes everything. Uh, then you're confidentially seeking my legal opinion, and you might engage me. Even if I can't accept the job because of conflicts, that inquiry is still confidential, and I can't ethically disclose it. Perhaps the grayest line exists around business advice. Generally, business advice from legal counsel isn't privileged. Now, obviously, there can be times where there's an interesting intersection between legal and business advice. If you called me and said, I've heard you argue that the government can only go back 48 months on an overpayment. Do you think we should go back six years, as required by the 60-day rule, or 48 months when we do a voluntary disclosure? My response is likely to include both a legal recommendation that I think 48 months is the right test, and thoughts about what I might do. 
I think the better argument is that entire response is privileged as legal advice. But if your question were, we have heard that payer X is really slow paying claims. Would you enter into a contract with them? There's a pretty good argument my reply to that question would be totally business advice and not protected. The bottom line is that anytime you speak to a lawyer confidentially seeking his or her legal opinion, that inquiry should typically be privileged unless your inquiry is intended to further a crime. Neither the exchange of money uh, nor any formal agreement is required. It appears the two big questions present in the Cohen situation are first, whether Mr. Cohen was acting as a lawyer or as a business advisor, and second, whether the legal inquiries were intended to advance a fraud. If a client is seeking to advance a fraud, related advice from counsel is not protected. Your inquiry is protected if you're trying to comply with the law, but it isn't if you're not. So Chuck, it can be a risky business if you try to get legal advice from large media outlets. If, like sticks, you've got a secret that you've been keeping under your skin, first, see a dermatologist, and second, make sure you know the limits of attorney-client privilege. I've got the secret I've been hiding under my skin. I'm just a man who needed someone and someone to hide to keep me Arigato, both to Mr. Roboto and to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was health care attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Hutchinson Byron in downtown Minneapolis. The death last Tuesday of former First Lady Barbara Bush in her funeral on Saturday is focusing a bright light on palliative care. Here now to report on this developing story is Dr. Michael Salvador. When I wrote the article last week, I focused on Barbara Bush choosing comfort for herself. But in a broad sense, Barbara Bush chose comfort also for her family and her caregivers because suffering, especially unnecessary suffering, is almost like radioactivity. It not only affects the person suffering, but all the people around them and Those especially affected are those who love and care for the patient. Uh, One of the things we see in the hospital all the time is what I term wrongful admissions. That is, people who should stay at home and be comforted, but instead come to the hospital and be treated. And if you put aside the suffering of the patient and and consider the fallout that occurs to the staff, It's extreme, and it is actually brutalizing. More and more articles are coming out how nurses forcing to care for patients who they know in their hearts won't survive CPR, who are forced to give them CPR, actually suffer a form of PTSD, which I think in the lay literature uh, is called burnout. And as all of us know, medical burnout among doctors and nurses and many medical personnel is epidemic proportions. And what I think pains people the most who care for people unnecessarily is the fact that many people come in the hospital totally uninformed of their conditions. That is, they just don't know how sick they are. They know how sick they feel, but they have no idea where they are. Worse yet are people who are actually misinformed. That is, they're told they're better off than they are. That is, they're not truthfully given the results of tests. And while... 
Some physicians or nurses may do this intended to be merciful. In the end, it's really a brutalization. And finally, what's really epidemic among patients and their families is two types of ignorance. One, the ignorance of disease, that is, their prognosis, that is, the trajectory of the disease, that is, when they're going to die from it, hasn't been told to them. But worse yet, ignorance of palliative care in general, which itself is an epidemic in our country, not only among patients, but among medical personnel. And if you think about it, people use pain to torture people for a reason. Pain used as torture has two characteristics. One, it's insufferable, and two, it's random. The insufferable part leads to depersonalization, a sense of hopelessness, in the end, the sense of despair and depression. But the randomness leads to loss of control. And these are two things that people who suffer unnecessarily and the caregivers who take care of them suffer. That is, if you don't know what's happening, if you don't have this predictive information, you can't develop coping skills. And if you don't know what's coming and it's out of your control, the personal loss of control uh, is insufferable to people and actually leads to many people making very bad decisions. One that comes to mind is people who leave AMA to exercise control over their health care, where they rather have make a wrong decision than have no decision capability at all. And so if we're going to fix this problem going forward, we not only have to realize that not only are the patients being brutalized, but the caregivers and the medical staff around them and the family around them. And we also have to cure the epidemic of ignorance of palliative care, which seems to be epidemic and seems to be not dealt as an epidemic. If it was the plague, we'd have an antibiotic for it. But it seems even programs of information that are random across the country that are people producing very excellent products of information are resisted by physicians. And in the end, it may be the physicians themselves have been brutalized because as any doctor who's gone out to tell a family that the loved one they were expecting to be alive is dead ends up with a kind of brutalization themselves. So in the end, the solution of palliative care may be to work very hard and diligently to, to cure the epidemic of medical burnout that's sweeping the nation. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Salvador. That was Dr. Michael Salvador. He is the medical director of palliative care at BB Healthcare in Delaware. He's also a member of the Rack Monitor editorial board. You can read all his reporting on palliative care at rackmonitor.com. Thank you very much, Dr. Salvador, for being with us today. As we mentioned, Rack Monitor has published an exclusive report on Medicaid, State of the Union, by healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Here now. With part two is Nicole Emanuel. Good morning and welcome to the broadcast, Nicole. Good morning, Chuck, and thank you for having me. I'm excited to give my part two of the State of the Union on Medicaid. We're going to start today with Illinois. On January 12, 2018, five nursing home operators filed a federal lawsuit against the state of Illinois, arguing that low Medicaid payment rates and the claims, the Medicare claims backlog, are jeopardizing patient care. Because of Section 30A of the Social Security Act, which mandates that the reimbursement rates allow for quality of care, I question why aren't more health care providers filing lawsuits to increase Medicaid reimbursement rates? 
Indiana. Indiana is focusing its audits on outliers. In other words, providers who provide significantly more services than other like specialties are being focused for the audits. Iowa. Because of pressure from the federal government, Iowa has implemented more prepayment reviews. Specifically, Iowa auditors are reviewing hospital discharge records for signs of noncompliance. This is um, probably warrants an additional rack monitor day to talk about prepayment review. Kansas. Kansas uh, Medicaid through its vendors has instituted a compliance plan and is committed to reaching a June 1st deadline to deal with Kansas state concerns over processing of Medicaid applications. One of the vendors there is required to reach certain performance standards or face fines and potential loss of its contract. Whenever a Medicaid vendor loses a contract, it does disrupt the process of Medicaid and reimbursements. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. news, a behavioral health care provider accused of fraud has put behavioral health care providers on the front line. Those audits in Maine will be focused on behavioral health care providers. Maryland. Maryland is odd because since 2014, the state caps hospitals' revenue each year, letting them keep the difference if they reduce inpatient and outpatient treatment while maintaining care quality. Per capita hospital spending by all insurers has grown by less than 2% a year in Maryland, below the economic growth rate defined four years ago as 3.58% annually, which is a key goal for this program. Massachusetts. Massachusetts has begun to roll out new accountable care organization networks, or ACOs, Members assigned to an ACO have until May 31st to switch before they're locked in for nine months. The changes are expected to impact more than 800,000 Medicaid recipients and are designed to better manage patient care, reimburse providers based on quality, and to address social determinants of health. There is going to be expected confusion with this change among Medicaid patients and providers. Mississippi. Mississippi has now made the determination that Medicaid beneficiaries must work, be self-employed, volunteer, or be in a drug treatment program, among other approved activities. If people don't comply, they'll be kicked off of Medicaid. Missouri is very interesting. The Missouri Hospital Association has won a lawsuit against CMS over a rule that deducts Medicare and commercial insurance reimbursements from total disproportionate share hospital allotments. The judge ruled that the agency, it, the agency exceeded its authority. Missouri hospitals would have had to pay back $96 million for 2011 and 2012 alone. Expect more scrutiny on hospitals in light of this decision. Chuck, that's all I have time for today. I'd love to talk about the other states, but back to you. 
Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a member of the Rack Monitor Editorial Board, and she's a, a partner at the Potomac Law Group, and you can read all her stories on Medicaid State of the Union on our homepage at rackmonitor.com. So here's a question for you. Could non-physician practitioners be the next target of auditing by CMS? Here now to report our lead story is Senior Healthcare Analyst Frank Cohen. Good morning, Frank. Morning, Chuck. So as a background, I worked as a PA, a physician assistant, back in the 70s to the early 80s, both in the military and as a civilian. And I am a staunch supporter of non-physician practitioners. And the training today is so much better than it was when I went through that I think everyone should universally accept uh, MPPs as a proxy for a physician in, in a lot of the cases, high percentage of cases. Over the past 10 years, I've worked on hundreds of audits and appeal cases, both government and private payer. And the one constant has always been a focus on the physician provider. Now, MPPs have gotten caught up in these audits, uh, but, but they've never been the primary target. Um, over the past several years, we've seen a surge in the number of walk-in urgent care clinics, and, and many of these are staffed at times exclusively by NPs and PAs. In fact, I do some risk assessment on one of the top 10 chains, and I can tell you that the ratio of NPs to physicians is just significantly larger than, than it is in regular practice. And if you do a bit of numbers lookup, you'll find that out of the 1 million or so physicians on the books, maybe about 780,000 are in what we might call private practice. But there's about 200,000 NPs and PAs almost all of whom are in some form of private practice. So about a quarter of healthcare providers are now made up of PAs and MPs. Now, in the past, we've always seen issues around things like Incident 2, which is where the, the MPP provides a service that is Incident to the physician service. It's often paid less, and in some cases not paid at all, uh, which surprises me because for an industry that's looking to find ways to reduce costs, while maintaining quality, that's a pretty stupid policy. But, you know, this is a great example of you can't fix stupid. Um, I've been involved in a lot of Incident 2 audits, but, again, the focus was on the physician with respect to liability. Same goes for split shared services. And, and the, reason, the, the reason I mention this is just to show how administratively complex and medically unnecessary are the rules and regulations that surround a system that's crying out for improvements, but it steps on its own feet on a regular basis. The point is, in addition to hamstringing NPPs with a myriad of rules and policies and procedures that are designed solely to reduce or exclude payments, they're not being targeted directly by auditors. So far this year, I've worked on three audits that focus their efforts solely on two PAs and one NP. So now we're starting to see that the NPs and PAs are not being caught up in as ancillary portion of these audits, but are actually now being the targets of these audits. So the bottom line is there's now 200,000 new targets for C both CMS and private payers to go after for recoupment and recovery audits, and I expect that to increase. Uh, as such, it is the wise compliance officer that begins to treat their MPPs just like they treat their physicians. And that, Chuck, is the world according to Frank. Back to you. And thank you, Frank, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Analyst Frank Cohen. Frank is the Director of Business Analytics and Intelligence for Doctors Management. And you can read Frank's exclusive report on the auditing of non-physician practitioners in this Thursday's Rack Monitor E-News. Hey, now it's time for the results of our Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here's Nancy Beckley. Nancy. This is quite an interesting survey here this morning. 17% of our listeners that are on the call today said that TPE education has been of assistance, whereas 23% said it is not, 
and another 33% saying they have mixed reviews. We have 25% of our listeners this morning that found it's not applicable. And I want to mention that Val, a longtime listener to Monitor Monday, has commented in our chat box that TPE has been good overall as long as the MAC understands the rules they're auditing. Uh, the rules they don't understand, his organization's had a lot of difficulty educating them on the rules. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nancy, very much. And uh, David, I think we've got time for one or two questions. David. You bet, Chuck. So Susan wants to know, hey, my our facility received an invitation to submit an expression of interest for the low-volume appeals settlement, but we're under a CIA. I thought entities under a CIA are excluded. Is that true? And it's not quite true. It's CMS has the ability to bump you out if you, if you are under investigation, if you've got a CIA or a False Claims Act case. And so... They may reject your application, but you are free to apply. And then finally, Mary Ann's got a question about whether this information becomes available uh, after the webinar. I think she may be talking about Nicole's really factual, heavy, and really good segment about the Medicaid State of the Union. If you go to the RAC Monitor website, her article on there, um, which is great, would be a, a great place to look. And then, of course, the broadcast comes out by email in a little bit. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, David, very much. Uh, that's going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday, and we thank you very much for being with us. And our special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, Frank Cohen, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Nicole Emanuel, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Dr. Michael Salvador. And we thank you again for being with us, and we look forward to your joining me tomorrow when healthcare attorney Andrew Walker conducts his important webcast on the new initiatives that could really improve your chances to prevail at the ALJ. That's tomorrow, 1.30 p.m. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us today. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.